Hi guys, welcome to episode 166 of Fitter Food Radio. So today I am flying solo and this episode has come about as a result or a suggestion, sorry, uh, by our amazing podcast editor, Jonathan, who I think picked up on my desire to geek out every now and then and said, why don't you just do an episode on your own talking about something like gut health? So here we are and I have indeed chosen gut health for my first solo podcast. Now, if you've followed us for a while, you'll know that um, I work as a nutritional therapist. And that's for over 10 years now. I've been working on a one-to-one basis with clients. And recently, I've also been working in nutrition clinics as a supervisor. And I also mentor nutritional therapists. And I say this because it's enabled me to crowdsource a huge amount of information and see lots and lots of different cases of digestive health issues, all of which have been hugely beneficial for me. But I've also had a number of issues myself. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome in my 20s. So I've had this kind of constantly evolving journey with my own gut. And it's taught me lots of really important life lessons. And I I really think I'm always going to be kind of work in progress with it, as I'm sure you've picked up on again if you've listened to previous episodes. So in this session what I wanted to do was really delve a little bit deeper into discussing the gut microbiome and the reason for this is just new evidence and and really valuable information emerging all the time and I revisit the research or people who are involved in full-time research as much as possible. I learn from the best uh, people that I genuinely trust out there. But what we're also seeing, there's been a a shift towards gut health products being marketed left, right and centre on social media. There's also new media headlines um, most weeks about something that's good for your gut, something that's bad for your gut. And it can all all get a little bit confusing. And I often see a lot of people kind of jump to products rather than thinking about some really quick wins with their gut health. Like what are you eating for a start and how are you eating that food can make a profound difference to your digestive health. So that's what I want to do really is is delve a bit deeper, geek out a little bit, give you some interesting facts about your gut microbiome and then just give you some key pieces of information you can take away and just reflect upon about some basics that you should have in place when it comes to looking after your digestive system. Um, I'm just going to go back through my kind of own personal experience because, again, this things that I have learned will be valuable, no doubt, to you if you've had any type of health issue. The, the approach that I use with my clients is, is one based on functional medicine, where we're always looking at the causes uh, behind the scenes when it comes to dysfunction in the body. We don't tend to, as a nutritional therapist, we can't diagnose a disease as such. We're not medical professionals. We just identify a system. It could be the digestive system. It could be the immune system or the respiratory system that doesn't seem to be working like it should. And then we kind of sit with an individual and work back through health history, but also events that have happened in life, diet, also medications, anything that might have triggered a disease process or might be driving it in the wrong direction and stopping that person from being able to make any sort of recovery. And what's beneficial working more on a kind of one-to-one basis is that we we have a long period of time with that individual. So we also get to know things like emotional health, social health, environment, daily routine, stress load, because all of these things, as you probably know by now, can affect your health really significantly. 
going back through my journey, what's been really helpful for me, and this is this is kind of what I do on client cases, is draw a timeline. We know in terms of digestive health, how you're born, even your mother's health, we can keep winding back further, your mother's health during pregnancy, in fact, your mother and father's health at the point of conception, your grandparents' health are all influencing things like your genes. And we know that there's a genetic element to, to both kind of your health potential and, and your disease risk. So it's always interesting to have a few conversations and explore some of that. We know if the, we're looking at studies from the uh, concentration camps in the Second World War that we see a huge risk of chronic inflammatory conditions in the two, three generations that have come since then. So we know that these contract down through several generations. We, we are often kind of looking at our parents, but our grandparents and our great grandparents will be influencing factors in our own health. A few other key things that really influence your digestive health is then how you are born and early infant feeding, early life feeding. So whether or not you're breastfed and obviously there's not a lot you can do about these things, but it helps you to collect together a picture and it might help you to prioritise certain elements of your your nutrition and your lifestyle a little bit more. And just the first few years of of, uh, weaning and and the foods that you're, you're brought up on as well. And of course, one of the problems we have now is traditionally... And I know this was kind of the case for me. We didn't have that much access to processed, highly processed and refined foods, but this has changed pretty much, you know, since the Second World War, it's changed every single decade and food has has become cheaper, uh, more readily available, but much more refined. And although we have the macronutrients, the protein, carbs and fats, we don't necessarily get the micronutrients. And of course, in terms of population exploding, we have to intensively farm things. So our soil health is not what it used to be, which means we also lack a lot of micronutrients, even in things like fruits and vegetables that we would have had. So when I was brought up, I was kind of raised in the Peak District. There was no supermarket. So I was quite lucky in some ways that um, my mum used to go and buy things like meat from the butchers and bones and organ meats and try to make everything last as long as possible. So again, traditionally, cultures have eaten animals nose to tail and made sure that we got all of the kind of micronutrients we needed from that. And there was a lot of kind of growing vegetables in the garden and, um, you know, sourcing food fresh. Or, or I also remember my mum, if she was cooking something like lentils, um, she would be soaking everything overnight. That's how she was taught to prepare food. And again, the reason I'm discussing this is because how we prepare food also affects how it kind of hits our digestive system. A lot of the practices that we've dropped out, like soaking beans overnight, cooking them slowly, do kind of start the digestive processes. So make them a lot easier on your gut. What we're doing now is kind of grabbing microwave packets of of lentils and chickpeas or tins and then wondering why we kind of your stomach balloons a couple of hours later. So they're not prepared in a way that our digestive systems can break them down and especially the gases that they produce. So I do remember that. And I also remember my mum baking bread because it was cheaper and we'd always have, and it was 24 hour fermented just because that's the way she was trained to make bread. So there was just always fresh bread lining the radiators and the airing cupboard was full of it. So I think I had a a lucky start. I was born naturally and I was breastfed as a child. So you could say my gut had a a start that mother nature intended. And this isn't the case for everybody. And also, I just want to add that if if you were born via C-section, which is obviously you're exposed to a different microbiome. I haven't, I've kind of jumped ahead here, just um, not really explain why it's significant how you're born. But as you go through the birth canal, what we get is is exposure to our mother's vaginal microbiome through our nose and mouth, and that populates our gut. And then breast milk provides a prebiotic effect and begins to kind of fertilise the, the different organisms that are now inside you as a baby. So that's how all of this kind of works. 
Now, what we're seeing is a, a kind of shift. Um, there are much more C-section born children. We're seeing less uh, breastfeeding. Again, this is not uh, always a choice. Mothers have to go back to work. And it just means that you have an, a different microbiome state. So different kind of microorganisms are you're, you're exposed to different microorganisms through the skin if you're born through C-section. And then obviously, if you're not breastfed, formula milk now is doing a better job of replicating the different types of uh, prebiotic and probiotic elements that you would have had through breast milk. But what we now know is that the mother decides during pregnancy by uh, the body's very clever and it's kind of almost doing a little bit of an observation assessment and the mother's deciding and and actually sending in terms of um, she's sending microorganisms to, to the breast milk, to the birth canal, all ready for you. So your mother kind of decides what your, your microbiome should be. And that's a very intimate relationship that we can't really mimic necessarily through, through kind of a formula. Just to kind of go back to my own timeline of events, I've discussed this before on the podcast. I think where it really went wrong for me is teenage years on so many levels. You could talk about hormone health and other things as well. As a teenager, once you start to earn money, I started buying my own food. I rejected the lovely home-cooked meals that my mum would would have for dinner. And I would always want to be kind of heading out to McDonald's with my mates. Um, I was always buying kind of crap at school it was chips and gravy all the stuff my mum would kind of discourage me to to have and you know sausage rolls on the way to school it was just kind of like oh I can have all this stuff now I've got some money and I also hit puberty I was a bit late I was nearly 17 and my skin uh, just kind of went nuts exploded with acne very greasy oily skin and so I was put on antibiotics quite quickly and this, we now know, is still a, a kind of uh, one of the second or first treatments. I was given an, an acne cream, first of all, with, with vitamin A in and then then put on antibiotics. And it's still a common intervention. And the problem with it is it can make a bit of a difference. And therefore, you kind of go on and off them. And I think this was the case for me for over 18 months before they switched me to using a contraceptive pill for my skin. And what that does is suppress testosterone, so uh, helps with the kind of reduces the oils and, 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 and the hormonal side of, of acne. And I stayed on various different types of contraceptive pills for many years just to control my skin. And what we now know is, of course, antibiotics have a kind of profound effect on the skin. We have to take them on occasion. I've had them since for serious tonsillitis infections and other stuff. So again, you mustn't panic about these things. They're just kind of snippets of information as to why you might now, why you might have a struggle to get the kind of the balance with your digestive system. Um, ultimately, I think a lot of this stuff happens for a reason. We learn from it and we prioritise our health a lot more as a result of it. So you can definitely argue in some cases it's beneficial. I've certainly noticed a lot of the changes I made very early in my 20s and 30s. I've seen many kind of school friends start to join me now as they, they've just got to the 40s and they're just not getting away with some of the, the lifestyle habits that they had. So I think a lot of these things will catch up with, with us eventually. What we also know as well is things like the contraceptive pill would also alter your digestive health slightly. It could alter the motility, how your digestive system kind of moves and contracts. Remember, we've got kind of muscles and, and nerves altering um, whether or not you have a bowel movement or not. And uh, it also changes, again, the, the balance of microbes that are hanging out in the gut as well. So I think I can kind of see now why I ended up with so many issues by the time I got to 20 and was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. And what's really interesting about IBS is it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. So you are investigated for things like celiacs, um, inflammatory bowel disease like colitis or Crohn's. Um, obviously, there's a symptom assessment, maybe some blood tests done for inflammation. And if they can't find anything, it's just, you know, 
your bowel's a bit irritated and it's probably the most frustrating diagnosis you can ever have. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because no part of your body just gets irritated, um, you know, kind of annoyed, annoyed at stuff. But you could also argue, I think uh, to some extent, my gut just gets irritated with my lifestyle and my choices and, um, <laughs> and my brain. Anyway, I did see a wonderful doctor in my 20s who suggested trying an elimination diet, which again, this would have been in 2001. So he's quite ahead of his time, suggested taking out gluten, taking out dairy. He also had got into running at that point in time and said, you know, it's a mechanical stressor to the gut. The interesting thing about exercise is there's some new evidence emerging that overall exercise is beneficial, but we've always got to be thinking about the dose because the longer that you're exercising for and the intensity is obviously going to alter the body as a whole in terms of inflammatory states. We also get the deprivation of the blood supply to the gut and that will change things as well. And of course, it's that mechanical stressor. And if you've just eaten some food and then go and jump around, do burpees or some sprints, it's going to possibly have a, a kind of different, that food will enter the digestive system differently and, and uh, not be digested as well. So generally, it's beneficial, it seems, uh, it has a positive effect. You will know as well just how much a day sitting at your desk and kind of squashing your gut can lead to the buildup of gas. <clears throat> you can feel very heavy, like you haven't broken down your food. And sometimes just a very short walk, again, usually allows you to pass a bit of wind and you can instantly feel better for it. Generally, just kind of sitting for long periods of time isn't great in terms of just our posture. And that could also affect your gut very negatively. It's why we now have things like squatty potties, because even how we have a bowel movement sat down on a toilet, we should really be more in a kind of deep squat position, tilting the pelvis. And that's how it's it's much more effective to be able to pass that stool. And squatty potty means you can pop your feet up. Um, higher and again so you've got that kind of adjustment to the pelvis so movement generally is very good and exercise at a certain dose and intensity is also really helpful for digestive health but again in excess has that negative effect and it's something I definitely struggle to find that balance with I love my exercise I have to be very careful in kind of reading my body and just adapting where possible and what was quite interesting about this, this doctor was suggesting the elimination diet was that was the first thing that I went in and did. He also talked about stress to me, which I kind of was like, well, I don't really know how to manage that. I'm 21. <laughs> it just comes at me left, right and centre. I've left uni. I'm getting a job. I'm just under all pressure from from kind of, um, you know, what am I doing with my life type uh, situation as you leave university? So. I remember I didn't really have any stress management strategies in place. Uh, nobody taught me anything about breathing exercises, yoga. That all came a lot later. And my mum was, I'd moved back home after university. My mum was very, very understanding and I was very lucky. She decided to make me lots of things like dairy-free lasagna and kind of pasta dishes and things like that. And they were, I remember most of them were awful, lots of soy cream and stuff. And I remember really struggling with the whole process and seeing no results with my digestive health. In fact, I think I didn't really, I almost gave up on the process and just accepted that I was constantly bloated, struggling with wind. If I ever tried to stop the pill, my skin would go nuts again. And it's interesting because we know that there's key links between the skin and, and gut health. And often kind of working on your gut can really alleviate things like eczema, dermatitis, acne. I've seen all of these improve significantly across uh, my client base. And we think it might be due to this kind of altered balance of, of microbes in the gut. 
Um, but I switched to, as you probably know, if you've listened to this podcast, what I would call a paleo diet, but I suppose maybe an ancestral diet is is probably a phrase that's a little bit more probably uh, accurate now. Just removing a lot of processed refined foods, grains, legumes, and notice a big change with my digestive system. However, again, just, just with all things, I think I then over-relied on certain foods, started to notice some of my symptoms returning. And from then I've got into things like stool testing and started to look at, at the microbiome a little bit more in depth on a personal level. And also had my eyes open to the power of things I mentioned earlier, like breathing, our environment, um, and how these will influence my own digestive health as well as yours, essentially. And I've also used things like herbs, occasionally and had uh, amazing results with those as well. And there's lots of emerging research now on traditional Chinese medicine herbs or Western herbs like oregano, uh, rosemary oil, thyme. Many of these, by the way, can be like an antibiotic. So you have to use them under um, somebody who's trained in this process. And so under, under professional guidance, work with a nutritional therapist. Don't just go out and start throwing supplements at your gut, left, right and centre. And if you have the uh, funds to do so, then stool testing may be where you need to start if this has been kind of something you've struggled with for a long period of time. And if you have had, the, the medical model is to try to diagnose a disease and you may have just been told, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong, but you know you have multiple symptoms in response to certain foods and also, you know, in response to certain emotional states that are continuing to affect your quality of life and you haven't thought about stepping outside of the kind of medical model. There is a lot that you can do with lifestyle medicine and some of these, what we might term alternative medicine approaches, but I probably prefer lifestyle medicine. But again, um, alternative medicine would be things like herbs, which we now know can be hugely beneficial. So I just want to now start to to kind of delve into the, the the microbiome and what exactly it is, because you might talk about it, you might be interested in it, you might have looked at, there's now stool tests that you can do with apps to have a look at the balance of microbes in your gut. And then dietary interventions are suggested off the back of that to help you to rebalance. They will increase some species and decrease others, get rid of them. And what's quite interesting about many of these is, is there's still real challenges with the research. And generally, there's been quite a few mistakes made in the past because we haven't been able to really get a complete picture of the, the microbiome as a whole, or I should specifically call it the microbiota is the organisms themselves. And the microbiome refers to their genes. So we know that inside each of us, and actually on us as well, we have this um, ecosystem, this, this little community of microorganisms and they're things like bacteria, fungi, protozoa, archaea, even viruses as well. And of course, that's been hugely relevant in, in the last couple of years with COVID. Now, they are different types depending on what area of the body that we are considering. So we have some on our skin, we have them in the mouth, in the nasal cavity, we have them in the lungs, in the urogenitourinary tract. I can never get that word the right way around. Uh, down there. <laughs> Uh, and then also in our digestive system. And the way that it, they work in the digestive system is we have a small amount in the stomach. We have uh, we count them in colony forming units. We have some more in the digest in the small intestine, which comes next. And in the small intestine, it builds gradually. So there's not much at the very start of it, but your small intestine is very long and wiggly and kind of goes all around the center of your stomach, 
or your your ab, uh, your your torso, I should say. And towards the end of the small intestine, where it meets the large intestine, we have a greater concentration of these um, microorganisms. And then in the large intestine, we have absolutely loads. And it's estimated in total that I think it's thirty, oh, is it thirty-two trillion cells we have inside us that are probably um, microbes, not our own. And, and that's basically in terms of a ratio of human cells to microbial, it's it's about one to three to one. Now, if you've read our book, um, Second Helping, I actually wrote 10 to one because that was what we traditionally thought. But as I've mentioned, the research is changing all the time. And I have to say good practitioners have to be ready to shift their approach and um, and change things and kind of stay on top of the research. That said, I'm still in awe of many kind of traditional medicine practices because I'm now seeing, as I look through the literature, we identify something that would have traditionally been seen as IBS. We now know it's an overgrowth of a certain species and there'll be um, a Chinese herb like Dangshen, which is really powerful for it. And I've seen herbalists know that a client needs this just by looking at their tongue, which is how Chinese medicine works through tongue diagnosis. So um, I kind of like my foot in, in both camps. As I've said before in a podcast, I'll be looking at the new research, but I'll be also listening to practices that have been in place for thousands of years and and learning from those models as well. Traditionally, the the kind of um, the medical approach to the gut is to see it as an organ. And when something goes wrong, it could be related to kind of nerves, which is almost like the wiring that, that helps to govern things like the contraction and relaxation of muscles, which would move food through the digestive system, help us to break it down, and then obviously have a, a bowel movement as well. Um, I actually went to a cadaver dissection at Guy's Hospital with a lecturer when I was training and he was a gastroenterologist and surgeon and he thought it'd be really good for students to see this. They weren't fresh cadavers by the way, they were very old and been used several times but it was really helpful to kind of see the gut in its its full glory but I remember him talking through it very much like it was just this, this organ and it did stuff and What we now know, having identified links between digestive health and skin, digestive health and your immune system, digestive health and your cognitive function, your um, memory concentration, digestive health and hormones, almost everything is is affected by the gut. We knew there's a missing piece to the puzzle, which we've now identified as what we would call this microbiota. So microbiota is the organisms. And as I mentioned, the microbiome is their genes the balance of these different organisms inside and on you can definitely alter risk of disease and your kind of health overall. And what's really interesting is over two and a half thousand years ago, Hippocrates said all diseases begin in the gut. And we got a bit distracted since then and and didn't really pay attention to that statement. And then we had uh, Louis Pasteur come along and, and he identified, he developed the germ theory of disease and says, you know, we know that these little microbes are existing around us and if they get in you or on you, they could infect you and, and make you sick. So we came up with this new idea of why we fall ill. And he was actually challenged by other microbiologists and, and chemists who said, why is it that some people fall sick and not others if the microbes are everywhere and we're always being exposed to them? And what they argued was, it's not the microbe, it's actually the terrain that's inside the body and it's the kind of power of the body, the host, the health of the host to be able to protect itself that's much more relevant when it comes to looking at why you fall sick. And it's believed that Louis Pasteur, who you'll know that name through pasteurization was one of the things that he developed, which was killing off germs so that we don't get infected. And this is where we've had antibiotics and vaccines come along as well, which, you know, definitely have a role and you will likely have had them and, and the vaccine same thing where it's it, you know had a, a huge benefit on your health 
But what we're kind of doing with that medical model is sometimes denying the potential for us to step in and do some key things with our lifestyle, with our nutrition and um, and with our routine to really make sure that our terrain is, is healthy and strong and robust and able to protect us if we need to. And it's believed Louis Pasteur kind of on his deathbed admitted the microbe is nothing, the terrain is everything. So kind of just a really interesting debate that was taking place a long time ago, but it's probably quite relevant to what the situation is today. Because we've seen with COVID that our battle for a long period of time has been chronic inflammatory diseases. Um, So heart disease, cancer, diabetes, many of these are lifestyle related. We know that now. And for the first time ever, we've had an infectious disease step in, but kind of work with chronic inflammatory diseases to create this additional risk. And anybody that already had an an inflammatory condition was obviously at greater risk. We even have seen that people who've had digestive health issues, low hormone status, all the things that can come off the back of, um, again, that that kind of lack of the lifestyle things in place, and obviously aging as well, have have made people more vulnerable to a severe kind of um, COVID infection. So in terms of what is this microbiota doing that's inside of you or these kind of, um, let's just call them little dudes, uh, what are they actually doing? So they they are playing various different roles. Uh, they actually make things like vitamins. They also help you make chemicals like serotonin and dopamine. We know that a big chunk of serotonin is uh, produced in the digestive system and how this interacts with our, our kind of uh, brain level serotonin isn't, isn't actually fully understood, but you will often see links between depression and, and gastrointestinal issues and inflammation itself, which often will kind of stem from the gut and the gut triggering the immune system, will also create a downregulation of serotonin. Your body doesn't kind of want you feeling happy and, and, and brilliant when you've got some kind of key, when it's at war, essentially it's, got, it's dealing with a kind of more sinister situation. Um, so they will also uh, be responsible for things like your mood and emotional health. Um, one of the things that your microbiota are actually doing is also interacting with your immune system. Um, so the way that this works is, as I mentioned, we used to just see the, the gut as an organ to digest your food. But you also have to remember that it's the outside world inside your body because it's constantly taking things in. So it's going to be more vulnerable to infection and it needs to have this strong barrier function for a start that things can't not, you know, any old thing can't just get into the body. So it has this kind of filtering system in place. And then obviously something to kind of assess whether it should get in or not as well. And this is what our immune system and our microbiota are doing as a team, um, kind of assessing um, what's good, what's bad. Now, I'm just going to kind of explain what your mucosa is, because this is quite helpful as well. So you have something called your gut mucosa. And again, there's much more research coming out about this and how we could probably look after it, because it's a very important part of our tissues. It's actually the kind of inner lining of your, your digestive tract. And as I mentioned, because this is the outside world, we want to make sure it's it's got this really strong uh, barrier function. And it consists of a, a set of cells, and it's only one cell thick, so it's not particularly um, strong. It could easily be kind of penetrated and broken down. But on top of it is a layer of mucus. So these cells that line your digestive system actually make mucus. Mucus generally you'll know through your nose and and you have it in your mouth as well and you cough it up if you're having some kind of immune reaction, hay fever, asthma, those types of things. Mucus is, is again, really protective. Obviously, it helps to kind of move stuff along and get it going through the digestive tract. Again, we could kill it off, get rid of it if it's going into the stomach. 
but it also separates the microbiota and the cells in our body. And that's really important. If they make contact, if your mucus layers start to break down, which is very common in inflammation, so things like ulcers or colitis, Crohn's, any degradation of that mucus layer will mean there's contact between microbes and cells. And this can, again, create a lot of problems and is kind of the start of many disease processes. So we want to have these healthy cells. And the cells that line your GI tract are kind of extra special as well. They're doing loads of stuff. They're making the, the mucus. It's the goblet cell that does that. But they are obviously absorbing your food. That's really important. And they also release hormones and even speak to your pancreas and start regulating your blood sugars. So they are involved in the secretion of insulin. So our GI cells, again, if you have an issue with your digestive health, could really affect your blood sugars. And you probably know that if you've ever had an infection and, and felt quite blood sugary or you've had a rapid transit time, diarrhea, something like that, that can also obviously affect we're not getting a similar kind of hormonal response to food. So these cells are really important. And um, we also have just behind these cells, a ton of immune cells. So it's estimated around 80% of our immune system is sat just behind the small intestinal wall. And again, it's constantly um, interacting with the microbiome. And so there's little crosstalk going on. They work together as a team. There's one called the dendritic cell that reaches its arm into the lumen of the gut and it's constantly sampling what's going on. Have we got an infection here? Are we in trouble? What's the balance of stuff? What's the feedback that I need to give to the rest of the body? Should I release an alarm bell and create lots of inflammation, which you will experience as something like swelling? So it could be swelling of the stomach, stomach ache, and, and see that your gut will distend. It could be um, a swelling anywhere in the body as well, because we know there's links. Obviously, our immune system is everywhere especially concentrated around our skin and around our hollow organs, bladder, lungs, mouth, nose, sinuses, uh, just kind of below the nose that could trigger as well. Our joints, there's strong links now between different types of arthritis and infections that can happen in the gut as well. And obviously autoimmune versions of these conditions when our body attacks itself, we think might stem from the gut and some kind of breakdown of this cell um, layer on top of it is the mucus one side is the microbiota and then behind our cells is the immune system if all of this breaks down everything can get a little bit confused and this is where we start to see things like for example rheumatoid arthritis celiacs there's there's hundreds lupus there's hundreds of autoimmune conditions that we now know of this is one of the theories it starts here and you may have heard of the term leaky gut um, or more technically known as intestinal permeability, where the, the tight junctions between those cells that line the GI tract begin to, to break down and then stuff's getting in that shouldn't, particularly proteins. And you're made of protein. So we really don't want to expose our immune system to full proteins, chains of amino acids. Uh, we really just want amino acids on their own getting into the digestive system. That's why we have stomach acid and enzymes to break them down. If full kind of proteins are able to get through because that, that whole barrier system is broken down, our immune system may tag it, take a picture of it and say, you look shady, um, I'm going to attack you. And because you're made of protein, it might look very similar to the tissue around your joints or again, your, your organs even. So we can start to launch these. One That's one of the theories as to how autoimmunity uh, may begin. So there are areas of our, our gut that obviously our gut as a whole is it's really important, especially kind of maintaining that gut mucosa. But we also know that the balance of the microbiota themselves can have this profound effect on our health. Now, the problem is here, we, we have a lot of limitations in terms of identifying 
what's the balance of bacteria in your digestive system? Because I mentioned it's different in your stomach compared to your small intestine, compared to your large intestine. So a stool test is probably going to be more reflective of what's going on in your large intestine. But in terms of your small intestine, the kind of gold standard is really to do a biopsy, if anything. And that's very rarely done. And same thing for stomach. Biopsies are more commonly done in the stomach because we've identified um, a bacteria called H. pylori, which may be kind of one of the culprits behind things like stomach ulcers and acid reflux and problems with that, the upper GI system. And we have a treatment for that now. So the you'll find if you go under a gastroenterologist for any kind of treatment, they're much more likely to want to test when they kind of know there is some some kind of medical intervention and it makes sense that they can offer you when your symptoms become a little bit more kind of um, systemic and complex and um, um, you know they may change across seasons and across emotional states with fatigue it's a lot harder for medical professionals to kind of identify the right intervention and and they might even go across different systems and become a combination of respiratory and gut or skin and gut as well. So in terms of the the limitations that we have at the moment with the research, one is kind of identifying what is going on with your uh, microbiota. And the best bet that we kind of have at the moment, you may have have heard of breath testing. So if you do have IBS, one of the the first things you may be referred for is a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth test, which is where you go away, drink a sugar solution, and then you breathe into a tube and it measures um, the balance of bacteria that's coming you know, from your small intestine. Now, again, we know that there are limitations to this test. It's not 100% accurate. And you can even have a flatline test because actually you have an overgrowth of organisms that make um, hydrogen sulfide. So it's kind of using up all your hydrogen. So even though you've got a lot of wind and probably very rotten egg smelling wind, if you've got hydrogen sulfide overgrowth in the in the in the GI tract, you'll have a positive, a really um, a negative uh, breath test, and they'll say, "Oh, you don't have any bacterial overgrowth. You're fine." Um, that's not the case. So there's a, there's a lot of chance for kind of false positives, false negatives with a lot of gut testing, and that's why it has to be done in combination with looking at your health history, looking at triggers. When did it start? What makes it worse? What foods make it worse? Um, and then looking at your symptoms as a whole. And do you have diarrhea? Do you have constipation? You know, what else is kind of going on with this? Now, with the stool testing, what's also interesting is, as I've been kind of doing this for over 10 years now, is when we first started out, we used to culture stools. Um, So they would just take a sample of a stool and try to grow the bacteria and see what was in there. And we now know that that would probably have only led to the growth of certain species. So again, what we were getting was a very one-sided perspective on why a a swan was experiencing these symptoms. And it led to these hypotheses that it was an overgrowth of this species, an overgrowth of that species. And um, again, candida became a thing um, if you've you may have been diagnosed with candida overgrowth it's just one type of fungi that lives in the gut and we should have a certain amount it's beneficial not too much but again any types of, of fungi are they're very kind of weed-like in that without the kind of a good balance of other organisms they will are very opportunistic and may kind of capitalize on a, a body that's run down um, intestinal permeability gaps and, and be able to kind of take over and become a very dominant species which has negative effects all round and you'll often see that manifest again in skin health bladder health um, with fungal overgrowth thrush and things like that are kind of one of the signs now the limitations to the stool testing has meant that you know we've kind of come up with these ideas of candida overgrowth or not enough of these 
beneficial bacteria and probiotics would be helpful, but we really weren't getting the true picture. And this has changed slightly now where we've started using DNA profiling. So if we look at the now um, some of the latest stool testing, I use a company called Invivo Clinical, we'll do a combination of kind of culturing and DNA almost as a kind of backup check of what is in there because if you check the dna of the stool i mentioned that the microbes have their own little uh, microbiome and we'll, we'll get a snapshot of what types of species are hanging out there and this is kind of more helpful it's much more advanced uh, one of the other limitations with the studies i should say with the research sorry side of things is not only do we struggle from a testing perspective and um, and then there's also a skill set required to interpret those tests one thing I've learned over time, seeing lots of different client cases, is you could have a snapshot of someone's microbiome. You could know that actually a, a Mediterranean diet would be good for this. And um, I'm going to use some herbs like berberin and various different things to kind of modulate the microbiome. But if that individual hates their job, um, is in a, a, an awful marriage or really sleep deprived and stressed with kids, it, it's not going to have the desired results. And over time, I've really encouraged clients to consider making small and, and sometimes huge modifications their lifestyle first and just seeing the effect that it can have on the gut. I'll go into a little bit more detail in a second about some key areas that you always need to consider with your digestive health. But as well as kind of not necessarily having the, the right way to test, the studies themselves, and this is why one thing that I think is good about the kind of medical model is that it does hold back until there's a decent amount of evidence, lots of randomised controlled trials where they've really tried to control for different vari variable factors and, and had one group doing an intervention and one group, uh, you know, taking placebo. So it really does allow, you know, good comparisons. We don't have many randomised controlled, good randomised controlled trials, good quality studies on, on digestive health interventions when it comes to things like diet and when it comes to things like traditional herbs and and Chinese medicine, they are increasing. And sometimes we can look at the mechanism itself will just make sense if a, if a herb is antiviral, antifungal, and somebody is presenting with symptoms and of, of many of these, it's just likely that it's going to be helpful for that person. But even the diet studies themselves, when they're being done, they're taking things like corn oil to look at high fat, the influence of a high fat diet. And the thing about some of the macronutrients that are being used is they're highly processed and refined, high in omega-6, which could create a pro-inflammatory effect. They're not using a good quality Mediterranean diet or ancestral diet or looking at, you know, using coconut oil or avocado oil and, and you know, um, the food quality can make a huge difference to the gut. So this is where we're now seeing um, kind of more individual researchers getting teams together and doing um, some really good work in this area. Uh, Lucy Mailing is, is one individual who's um, she's actually had a journey using a ketogenic diet to heal eczema and uses autoimmune paleo as well uh, for lots of different cases but she's the first one to say there's also incidents where a plant-based diet will be more appropriate for a client depending on what's come out of their kind of microbiome or microbiota testing and she's actually trying to do some some good research using uh, you know kind of good quality uh, uh, diets and that'll be really interesting to see what the the effect of those is. Um, but what we don't actually have really also is a snapshot of what is a healthy microbiome. So one of the best bets really is, um, as a practitioner, what I'll do is, is look at where the client is, uh, you know, with their lifestyle, with their diet right now, what's not working. And I may do some stool testing and other testing. I'm a big fan of kind of uh, blood testing as well. And I'll look at markers for inflammation and things. And um, often kind of doing the, the opposite is, is hugely beneficial when it comes to the diet side of things. 
but looking at what's kind of too high maybe in their, their stool test, what's lacking. And if they're unwell, there's a chance that kind of balancing that is going to be helpful for that individual. But in terms of projects like the Human Microbiome Project are trying to establish this idea of, of um, you know, what is it? What is um, a, the right balance of species? What should be high? What should be low? You'll probably know this from hearing terms like um, lactobacillus and bifidobacterium should be should be healthy, you know, high. And especially in kind of Western European populations, it's why you see those in things like probiotics as the, the dominant strains. But when we look at more traditional cultures and modern day kind of hunter-gatherer tribes, they have a completely different balance of, of microorganisms in their gut. And they actually have high amounts of, of, of species that we see over in more industrialized populations associated with Crohn's and colitis. So it's really interesting. And I think at some point what we're going to have is it will really depend on genetics and environment. And so your, your kind of your diet ancestry may be kind of relevant here. And the further you've shifted from that might be having a, a negative effect on your digestive system. But it's why I caution you from following anybody who's suggesting you have to have a high amount of something unless, again, they've, they've really done that look at your microbiome and looking at your, your kind of current diet and lifestyle and, and then they, their hypothesis may, might make more sense. But also why it's important not to just jump to these products that are being suggested to help you improve your bifidobacterium, your, your, your lactobacillus. So this might be probiotics. It might be uh, prebiotic fibers are quite common now, taking things like potato starch and green banana flour and uh, inulin to be able to grow beneficial species in the gut. There can be certainly a role for these. Um, but when we're taking them as kind of uh, supplements and, and flowers, we get a lot more than we need. And we, you could actually end up maybe doing more harm than good. Because we think now, again, in the past, in, in, in kind of nutritional therapy, we always thought about there was a problem with overgrowth. Um, there's too much of this, there's too much of this. But really, it's about an imbalance. And gut lining is kind of like a car park. And it's who's filling the spaces down there is probably the more kind of um, sensible way to look at it. And we want this, this mixture down there. And we want um, enough of the kind of beneficial to be filling the car park to make sure we've got healthy mucosa and we're not seeing any kind of inflammation and degradation of that. Um, there'll always be some opportunistic stuff in there as well. And, and they're probably serving a purpose. So we don't want to kind of just kill off everything either. But I think in future, what we're going to see is more and more research on this and a better idea. And it'll probably link to, again, your kind of your ancestry, your genetics and, and where you are in the world as to what would be a healthier one. But I really like Lucy Malian's take on this. And she just says a healthy microbiome is the one you have when you're healthy. And, and so when you're feeling good and you don't have to do excessive amounts of stool testing to get to that place. But equally, I just want to caution on doing too much with elimination diets because again, what we know is that with elimination diets, we can get symptom relief. And these have provided great insights uh, to me in the past, but I think I've also relied on them. I'll go back to an elimination diet that gave me you know, relief from bloating and wind in the past, but it does mean that I'm restricting my food intake and possibly depriving my um, microbiota of fibres and, and again, kind of things that are going to feed it and nourish it. There is this general idea that diet diversity and eating a bit more seasonally is probably best for our guts because this is what we see happens in traditional cultures and not so much in industrialised populations. And again, when we look at industrialised populations, generally their health is worse. And there are lots of reasons for that, air quality, lifestyle, stress, technology exposure. 
but definitely there's there's probably some elements which they they do have less um, variety of, of species in their in their gut and probably likely in, in all areas of the body because of the way that they over rely on 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 just um, certain types of food and it's estimated that most of us eat about 15 different foods over and over again so again we're not just not giving uh, we're not different species different um, foods will lead to different species being able to kind of um, thrive so this is thought to be one of the one of the issues and again with the seasonal side of things we should see shifts in the microbiome and it's not a negative thing in traditional populations we see this it changes through the winter to the summer you'll often see your health shift and some of that will be related to again time indoors time outside vitamin d levels those types of things but we don't do that anymore eitherly and, and eitherly i just invented a word there either and it's probably uh, it's probably something we should be a little bit more aware of and just generally for the kind of sustainability element as well and, and eating more local and seasonal is beneficial for that side in fact, many of the gut microbiome, microbiota researchers talk about the fact that our gut interacts with our environment and we should be thinking about sustainability and, and being out in nature a little bit more and not destroying our natural habitat. It will be having a negative effect on our own little ecosystem that's inside us. And, and that's really important. And there's much more awareness of that taking place. So some things that I think uh, are helpful for everybody to know about is that there are elimination diets that can provide symptom relief. So a couple that are commonly recommended, again, through if you go to a GP or see a gastroenterologist, um, you'll often be recommended a gluten-free diet and that can be helpful. I should add there's a huge potential for a placebo effect with any supplement and any herbal intervention and any new diet uh, suggestion with GI health. I see the same with hormone health. Um, it's, it's incredible how effective it can be in, in the studies. They've, they've really proved this as well. But uh, gluten-free diets are often recommended, dairy-free diets, sometimes fructose has been identified as, as possibly problematic. A very common recommendation is a low FODMAP diet, that's low fermentable carbohydrates. And sometimes these will be, um, you know, relevant in that maybe that that protein or that type of fiber has become a problem for you. But we do always what we want to, we we do always want to think about the why uh, behind the scene. So what element has broken down and what might have what factors might have contributed to that. And what I just want to kind of caution you on is, is not get, not getting too carried away, as I mentioned, and, and really severely limiting your diet without professional expertise. Because again, it might bring that symptom relief, but what we, you might ideally want to do is then tweak that microbiota and then be able to add more foods in and try and get the, the flexibility and the diet diversity where possible. And you've always got to be keeping an eye on your hormone health in the background. One of the key things um, when I, a couple of years ago, really you know, I really put my, hold my hands up. I was kind of approaching burnout, I think, but massively in denial of that <laughs> and developed gastritis. So this is inflammation in my upper GI system. And one of the things I noticed was very uh, elimination diet really helped me. I used a GAPS diet, which is just broths and, and slow cooked meat and low fiber vegetables initially, and then gradually was able to add things back in. Chinese medicine herbs made a huge difference to me, but it had such a negative, the whole experience, such a negative effect on my hormone health and my thyroid. And I had to be really careful about slowly building um, foods back in and getting more carbohydrates in there um, as, as soon as I could and saw my thyroid improve with, with um, more you know, greater carbohydrate intake. But I had to fix the lining of the gut first to be able to tolerate some of those foods. 
And in terms of factors that are likely to, to have a negative effect that may be causing your, why can't you break down fermentable carbohydrates? Why are foods triggering you in, in certain ways? We know that um, one of the contributing factors is probably antibiotics. So if you've had several courses, um, it may be wiping out enzymes and your ability, or, or, or actually it's wiping out your bacteria, your microorganisms, and your ability to digest food. They're a fundamental part of that. So it's not the food itself. You've kind of lost the ability to digest it. So of course it makes sense to do the elimination. I should add there is no gold standard accurate way to test whether you're reacting to a food really. There is um, certain um, antibody tests that can be done for things like gluten. There's true allergy testing that can be done where we look at um, something called IgE, which is whether you get like an anaphylactic reaction to things. But you will often see food intolerance tests done um, via different companies through hair sampling or they use um, uh, different kind of uh, markers like IgM um, and um, IgG. There's no, um, when people have tested these and kind of sent off, one individual sends off two tests, they often come back with different answers. So they, there's, they're, they're not used by um, conventional medicine for that reason. They, they don't have enough evidence behind them. Um, anecdotally, I would say some people think they're reacting to eggs and eggs come back. And really in that situation, rather than spend your money on tests that we don't know have that kind of um, uh, the real uh, specific, 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 I'm not going to try and say it, that are 100, <laughs> offering you the, the kind of information you need, is, is really try and do the elimination diet yourself and uh, um, of one food ideally and test it and, and see. But as I mentioned, be careful about getting too carried away with that. Um, where was I? Where was I? So uh, if you've had lots of antibiotics, that could really affect it. If you have some inflammation present, so if you already have a condition, gastritis, or, uh, or ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, celiacs, they could be contributing towards your inability. They're, they're changing the balance and therefore changing what foods you can and can't uh, digest as well. We know that the diet itself, um, so again, if you've had a long time on a kind of processed refined food diet, then there's a good chance that you've fed certain species and deprived others, that could be playing a role. Um, stress uh, plays a huge factor. As I just mentioned, I um, had a kind of tough time myself and I've really had a long, slow recovery out of that. And just kind of never underestimate even how you're eating when you're stressed because we eat quicker. We rush things, we go for convenience foods. Sometimes I've, I've always kind of made good choices, but was over relying on, on much more kind of quick options fast cooked grains and things like that and not chewing my food properly, shoving undigested food into my stomach and, and then kind of not feeling great for it. But even just not breathing and relaxing and going into rest and digest mode has a real kind of influence on how that food is going to interact with your, your whole GI system. So I think it's really important to consider not just what you're eating, but how you are eating that food and, and really you should never feel guilty about taking time away from your laptop and your phone, sitting down, relaxing, doing some deep breathing. So when you breathe into the belly and relax your belly and see your belly rise and fall, this is a type of yoga breathing, or you might do it with meditation, you are activating the vagus nerve, which runs from the brain to the gut and switching on that digestive system to secrete enzymes and acids and saliva, which we need to break down food so it's not having such a negative effect on your digestive system. And it's only if you spend a bit of time doing that, relaxing, that you can probably get a better picture of what foods are working and what are not working for you. Um, and as I mentioned, 
social media kind of fuels trends towards foods are good, foods are bad, and gluten's bad, it's likely gluten. And it, it can always convince you to the point where you can start to get nervous about eating a food and therefore possibly have a reaction to it as well. So it's almost like we need to be secretly glutened <laughs> to truly find out if it's if it is a trigger for us. Matt did this really cleverly with me once with uh, coffee, where he um, went through a phase of um, he'd grab the coffees and I'd kind of wait outside the coffee shop and he'd always get me decaf. And um, then told me a couple of days later, he's like, you've been on decaf and you've been absolutely fine. Your energy's been good. And I thought it was a really cool thing to do. We could always do with a similar thing when we're trying to do a challenge test with food. What's working for is like be secretly buttered <laughs> in some way and not told about it. However, so um, I've just mentioned a few key things. So any medications, by the way, can alter your microbiota. So the microbiota have to metabolize them. They interact with them, of course, because medications go through the gut. Increasingly, we're seeing things actually done uh, topically, hormone uh, replacement therapy, things like that. And I'll often discuss that with clients. Is there a way to have medications administered in different ways? Supplements similarly, sublingual. So taking it under the tongue could be a little bit more beneficial to, to bypass the gut. Um, but we do know medications I mentioned before. So uh, anything related to kind of hormones could alter your microbiota. Proton pump inhibitors, which block the production of stomach acid, recommended for reflux. And again, you have to take these sometimes. We don't want to have damage the esophagus. It's uh, over time will change the tissue and put you at greater risk of, of more serious complications there. But again, ideally, these are used short term and you explore the root cause behind the scenes uh, with them. I have some older clients who are probably going to be on on. Uh, a meprazole for a long period of time or forever, really. I'm not sure they're ever going to be taken off it. So again, I'll, I'll do what I can to support them with the rest of their kind of diet and, and use supplements to bridge the gaps where medications like a meprazole will deplete B12 and magnesium. So I make sure they're kind of topped up with those as well. We know that blood pressure medication, again, it's a life-saving in some individuals. They're not going to be taking off it. will also impact the microbiome. So it's just giving you that idea of what might be influencing it. Again, so that you don't blame yourself and just overthink that slice of bread constantly. Um, there could be other things playing a role. I've also mentioned um, kind of the environment that you're in. And if you've been city-based, I was in London for 15 years, it might help to get outside, get dirty, get some soil under your fingernails. We know that having pets and exposure to, to kind of uh, fur and things like that is hugely beneficial. Um, and this all from an early age. So again, if you if you have children, we want to try to get that. I'm seeing more and more complications actually at birth and onwards. And it could be because there's that, again, kind of imbalanced flora. I'll call it flora. That's what I should have called it from the beginning. Uh, imbalanced flora in the gut. And also possibly there's some intestinal challenge, intestinal uh, permeability maybe going on from a very young age. So we always want to be thinking about building up um, the GI system, the mucosa, and um, getting the right balance with the microbiota. You now see colostrum actually uh, as a, a hugely effective supplement for children. It's usually bovine, so from grass-fed cows. Um, for children, and um, I've used this on, on my younger clients and also in adults as well, just to try to build up the lining of the gut and, and calm down the immune system. And then they're not reacting so much to foods. So um, again, you, you are seeing lots more allergies and food intolerances from a, a very young age now take place. But we also want to, as well as fix that gut and get the barrier to be strong, then we want to train the immune system to understand what is friend, what is foe. So uh, once we've got the kind of nice, healthy layers, they need that exposure to the dirt. And um, people do argue before the age of two, maybe they shouldn't be taking on highly processed refined foods. I'm pretty sure I had rusks, <laughs> as did Matt, despite having a good diet, you know, otherwise. 
because of this, this is a very important um, developmental time for our immune system and 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 the whole of the kind of the you know the gut itself. So limiting exposure to to processed refined sugars, other than things like fruits, uh, natural uh, foods. It could be wise. I don't know a single parent that in this day and age is able to do that. So if you're kind of feeling a bit nervous about it, it don't because you are the norm. But it might be something that's suggested going forward. I do think it's really important to get children. And I know they go through food phases. Some of my clients talk about children just going through a sausage phase and eating nothing else. And I think, well, at least they're getting a kind of mix of protein and micronutrients. It could be worse. They will go through fatty phases and there's a lot more kind of issues now I'm seeing increasing amount of issues with autism and um, spectrum disorders which will create a lot of fattiness or not even fattiness around food it's, it's it's gone way beyond a fat it's kind of I will not eat that type of food it's beige 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 um, and we know that this might actually be linked again back to possible kind of complications with the the gut itself and and the microbiome and we're seeing various different diet interventions be beneficial but it's going to take time before the research is there and some of them have to, have to happen in older age because it's simply too hard with with children to do this um but again i think it's helpful to really start educating children about food quality what is food what is pleasure food uh, you have every now and then and also be thinking about dental health from this perspective, because we know there's links between dental health and gum disease and uh, infections in the mouth also affecting the gut. It's all the same mucosa, so it can easily travel around the body and become systemic. Um, Matt and I are going to do a big chat about um, dental health after a visit to a nutritional dentist. And we, we learned some brilliant stuff, but we've really focused on trying to improve uh, oral microbiome um, ever since because of signs that despite having a good diet, most of the time the, there was kind of some, some issues there. And obviously that's going to increase with age. So I'm just going to finish off by saying that there is also some some really interesting things coming along with diet modulation therapies where we can see that once you've got a snapshot of your microbiome, I mentioned some apps are trying to do this, but it is better to work under a kind of professional because sometimes you are going to need maybe the support of supplements as well, maybe some herbs. There are key micronutrients like zinc and vitamin A that are really helpful for the gut because I didn't mention this before, but the cells turn over. They are the most proliferative cells in your body. They turn over really fast um, in a couple of days. So wherever there's kind of fast repairing cells, your skin's really similar. Think about getting an, you burn your mouth or you get an ulcer, how quick that disappears. Wherever there's high proliferation and, and if there's much, if there's a lot of inf- inflammation and damage taking place as with a lot of GI issues, there is colitis, Crohn's, gastritis, those types of things. You need the kind of micronutrients that help that cell turnover function. Vitamin A is really important, zinc, vitamin C. There's a lot of bleeding, like gum bleeding and things like that in the mouth, but anywhere, vitamin C can be quite helpful for that and the B vitamins. But again, work under somebody with that experience and they can tailor this to your individual needs, looking at what you're getting through your diet, what you're not. But there is also now emerging research that for some imbalances, a ketogenic diet is probably going to be really beneficial. For some imbalances, a Mediterranean diet is going to be helpful. For some gluten-free, for some it might be low FODMAP, to actually just nudge the, the microbiota back into the right direction. And we're even finding out new information about the gut cells. They run on something called butyrate. It's a fatty acid. So they're kind of running on fat, those gut cells. That's how they do their jobs, absorbing food, releasing hormones, making mucus, all that really important stuff, um, just being that barrier as well. 
that they make this fatty acid from fibre. So previously you've seen a big push on fibre in the diet for them to be able to make butyrate. However, if something goes wrong with the gut, so we often see with an infection, with antibiotics, with inflammation, they suddenly might not be able to, or a low fibre diet, especially one that's high in sugar and and, um, and, and crappy fats as well, if it's you know kind of a, gen- a general industrialised diet, what we see is the gut doesn't suddenly make enough of that butyrate, that fatty acid. So the cells have got nothing to fuel themselves on. They end up starving and they pull, it's so clever the body, it pulls glucose in to run on glucose instead. So we see a metabolic shift, a bit like we can run on fats uh, and on carbs and we can shift back and forth between the two. Our cells in the gut do the same. So they'll actually pull glucose in from the bloodstream, run on that. But a byproduct of this is oxygen and lactate is produced and that spills into the gut. And we actually see oxygenation of the gut, which changes your microbiota again. This is completely new. We didn't even, we hadn't even identified that this was taking place. So again, those influencing factors, if you remember, was the kind of um, typical Western diet, antibiotics, inflammation and infection could all trigger that to happen. And then you've got this imbalance taking place. So again, a different diet in in certain situations, ketogenic diets will resolve that. That's why there's a role for those. In other situations, it's going to be actually fully plant-based, low fat, because there's already uh, too many fat-loving microbes in there. I didn't mention at the start, the reason that diet modulation is proving to be quite effective is some of the microbes love fat, some love uh, carbohydrates, some love protein, and we'll be making things out of amino acids. I mentioned hydrogen sulfide, um, which is is generally made through um, protein and um, different types of amino acids. And you'll get the really kind of sulfur, strong sulfur smelling uh, wind and maybe even burps in in some clients I've seen as well. And this can be due to this, there's too much of that probably in someone's diet, protein and, and um, or certain types of protein and not enough fiber maybe as well. And therefore they've kind of overproduced and maybe lots of sulfur vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower and things like that. They're generally healthy. They're overproducing these gases because there isn't the right balance of those species. Uh, again, I think this is probably quite a big problem in the fitness industry and people who are kind of you know, looking at even kind of paleo diets, autoimmune paleo diets, if they have that negative effect, it might be because there's just too much emphasis on the kind of protein fats, um, again, could, could drive this as well and uh, too, too high fats and not enough of the fibres. It just might not work for your microbiome. So again, it's it's where we've always got to kind of be a bit blinkered when it comes to someone telling you a probiotic's amazing, someone telling you um, a probiotic drink is amazing or a fermented food or a type of diet brought them symptom relief. If it's not working for you, it's all, some of these things are worth trying, but I still think if it's a long, complicated journey you've been on, you need someone to project manage it. So it's good to, again, work with with someone a bit more on a one-to-one basis to tick off what it's not. It's not related to vitamin D deficiency. It's not related to a lack of zinc in your diet. It's not related to, um, there's a good chance it's related to stress. And those things have been tackled. Someone's identifying some of the, the key kind of drivers for you. And I'm just going to finish by saying there's some new research on probiotics suggesting that we need to approach these with caution as well. One of the really interesting studies has kind of shown that they are really pushing, there's only about 5% of your species in a probiotic. So of course, they're going to push, what probiotics do is pass through the GI tract. They don't populate and stick and hang around, but they influence your own balance of microorganisms. And they may push certain species and you get more of them 
but um, the, the main time to be careful is one, we don't necessarily need probiotics all the time. That will definitely alter the, the kind of dominant state. And after antibiotics, it's thought that they might push certain species. And again, this is completely new information. We were originally trained to suggest clients have a probiotic after antibiotics. Then we were told have them with antibiotics. And of course, probiotic companies are constantly publishing information to say that we need them, we need them. But there's actually more probably um, scope to say possibly looking at a really good, you know, kind of nutritional intervention post-antibiotics with lots of different types of food. Think about seasonal, think about local, think about food quality, avoid processed and refined. It will feed these opportunistic species, these weeds for about three weeks before you look at uh, probiotics. So I'm going to leave you on that. I've, I've actually just tipped over the hour. Um, I'm actually surprised. I thought I'd struggle <laughs> to make an hour. And as usual, I haven't struggled to talk. I hope you enjoyed this session. I will do more Geek Out sessions. And if there's topics you'd like me to cover, uh, please get in touch, info at fitterfood.com. Um, I could talk about um, hormones, immune systems, autoimmune diseases, anything that you guys think would be useful. If you've enjoyed these, this episode, I'd love it if you could share it with somebody. I know so many people that struggle ongoing with gut health and and have had very little success with the kind of usual interventions. And I'd love it if you would share this so they could just have a little bit of enlightenment maybe from some of the information. And of course, if you wouldn't mind giving us a review, that's awesome too, because it means more people can find us on the podcast apps as well. And that's it really, guys. I'll leave you to it and have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye.